Well, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 13. Hebrews chapter number 13. We have come to the conclusion of our study through the book of Hebrews together. And this morning we look at verses 20 through 25, the final paragraph of this letter. Hebrews chapter 13, I've entitled the message, A Resurrection Benediction. A Resurrection Benediction. And while you're finding Hebrews chapter 13, let me just say how good it is to see all of you here today. The last couple of years through COVID, Easter's not felt the same. So good to be together. And good to have friends of mine and my wife here as well that we've invited and you've honored us by coming. Thank you for being here. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brothers, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you, and all the saints, and those from Italy greet you also. Grace be with you all. Amen. If you're joining us as a guest today, for a little more than a year, we have been studying verse by verse the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews was primarily written to a community of Jewish Christians. But it wasn't just Christians to whom the letter was written to. He also addresses non-Christians throughout the letter. For example, those who had made professions of faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior during this time, they were being tempted to go back to the safety of Judaism as a result of the real suffering and persecution that they were experiencing because they decided to follow Jesus. And so he challenges those Christians, those who had made this profession of faith, for them to press on in Jesus, not to drift away, not to turn back, not to quit. There were also non-Christians that he would write to throughout the letter. These non-Christians were attending the services, they were listening to the sermons, they were trying to decide whether or not they should follow Jesus. And so the writer compels them to go all the way, to press on with faith in Jesus, to trust Christ. So the theme of Hebrews is press on, press on with faith in Jesus. Put your faith in him, keep your focus on him, and do not drift from him because he is so much better. He is so much better than anyone, and he is so much better than anything. The entire book has been committed to that theme. 
It's the same message that we say to ourselves today, those among us who are believers, who have made professions in faith. I challenge you, as Hebrews does, to press on. Do not quit. Do not turn back. Keep going forward in your faith in Christ. And to those who are here gathered who say, honestly, Pastor, I'm not a Christian. I'm learning. I'm listening. I'm, I'm trying to decide for myself whether or not I, I do want to trust Christ, I say to you, press on in Christ. Go all the way. You will never regret for one moment choosing to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so now we come this morning to the benediction of Hebrews. The benediction. Now, a a benediction is simply a, a prayer of blessing, typically prayed at the conclusion of a worship service or at the end of a sermon. Every Sunday morning in our worship gatherings, we have a benediction prayer using a brief verse of scripture or two to conclude our time together. This benediction portion of the service, it it follows the pattern of the New Testament gatherings. Almost every New Testament letter we see written ends with a special prayer of benediction. It's why we do it in our services week after week and we will once again this morning. Uh, Brian Chappell in his book on Christ-centered worship wrote this, offering a benediction at the conclusion of worship on behalf of God's people is a high privilege and an opportunity to remind them of the preached word and to send them out with a sense of blessing and mission as they depart for their week. The the benediction of Hebrews that we've read here just a moment ago, it, it might be one of the most beautiful prayers One of the most beautiful benedictions, blessings ever uttered. It's a benediction that I use often even at the conclusion of our own worship services. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor, we're five five minutes into this message, and what does any of this have to do with Easter Sunday? (laughs) What does the benediction have to do with the resurrection of Christ? Well, today, not only do we come to the conclusion of our studies in Hebrews... But at the heart of this benediction is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every bit of the motivation that the writer has given to us to press on with faith in Jesus these past 13 chapters, it is all predicated on the historical fact that Jesus Christ indeed rose from the dead. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, none of this matters. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, I'm not telling you to press on. I'm telling you to go home. It's useless. It's it's worthless. It's just another religion to say that I subscribe to. But no, Jesus rising from the dead, it changes everything. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ had not risen, then our preaching is useless. And our faith is vain. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we testified that God raised up Christ. And if Christ had not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. Soul sleep, never to rise again. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And then he says, but Christ 
is risen from the dead. On this Easter Sunday, as we gaze into this resurrection benediction, I want us to see afresh the God of heaven, the God of the resurrection, the God who wants you to open your life to him. Who is he? Who is this God of the resurrection? Well, notice with me number one here in verse 20. He is the God who gives peace. He is the God who gives peace. Look at the opening portion of verse 20. Here's how the benediction begins. Now may the God of peace, literally, literally it says, the God who gives peace. He is the God who gives peace. I find this opening description of who God is very appropriate to the context of this Hebrew church. Remember, they were beaten down, facing an unprecedented season of persecution and suffering, and most of them are being completely isolated from their families because they had put their faith in Jesus. So as all of us often do, they needed to be reminded in this benediction as they had been again and again and again that our God, the God we believe in, the God we follow, the God we serve, that our God is a God who gives peace. He gives peace. Now the ultimate peace that God gives is spiritual peace. That is, when we come to faith in Jesus, we then experience peace with God. We are no longer His enemy. We are no longer alienated from Him because of sin. No, the blood sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect man, the sacrifice He made in our place, it was sufficient for God to give us peace with Him through Jesus Christ. So I don't worry about my eternity. Do you? I I don't fret at whether or not I am good enough or doing enough for God to accept me. Do you? No, the God who gives peace. When we put our faith in Christ, knowing what he has done in our place and for us, he gives us peace in knowing that I am right with God. And I am right with God, not on the account of what I do or have done. I am right with God on the account of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have Peace with God. And we have peace with God, not through our doing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. It's spiritual peace. I'm talking about the peace that allows you to lay your head on your pillow at night and knowing that if I lose my life in this night, I will wake up in the presence of God because of Jesus. The type of peace when your world is spinning out of control that knows regardless of my circumstances, Christ is in me and I am in him. 
I'm talking about the kind of peace when temptation gets you again, when doubt has you wondering, when trials have set you back and you wonder, has God forsaken me? Has God forgotten me? No, friend. I'm talking about the kind of peace that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it knows I may be struggling right now, but my heart is right with God because of what he has done for me. But not only that, Romans says. This type of peace also causes us to glory in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope. You see, God's peace allows us even to rejoice in hard times. I want to help you understand something. Putting our faith in the God of peace doesn't mean that our lives will be absent of conflict. Absolutely not. You're still going to get speeding tickets. Bills are still going to come in the mail. Still going to be struggles. It, it doesn't mean that we will live a life in continual state of tranquility. It means that no matter what the circumstances of my life, God has given to me the peace of knowing that every single one of his plans for my life are for a purpose. For a purpose. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Is your heart troubled today? He goes on to say, let not your heart be afraid. There's something you're afraid of, something you fear. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be afraid. Peace I leave with you. My peace, Jesus said, I give to you. I want you to understand this morning, peace doesn't come from without the world. Peace doesn't come from within ourselves. No, peace comes from above the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this God of heaven, the God of the resurrection? He is the God who gives peace, and he wants to give you peace today if you will simply trust him. All right, secondly, who is this God? He is the God who brought back Jesus from the dead. He's the God who gives peace. He's the God who brought Jesus back from the dead. Look again at the benediction in verse 20. He says, now may the God who gives peace, may may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. So again, he's the God who gives peace. He is the God who brought back Jesus from the dead. Brought back Jesus, Jesus from the dead. So let's see in this benediction again who Jesus is. Look at it there in verse 20. It says that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Who is Jesus? He's that great shepherd of the sheep. It's a a metaphor that not only tells us who we are. Okay, we're the sheep. We're unintelligent, vulnerable sheep who are no good on our own. That's who we are. It's a humbling metaphor, by the way. When you start thinking yourself pretty good, you know, look at me, I got everything under control, look what I've made out of myself, and God says, I just want to remind you, you're just a bunch of dumb sheep. So, so it tells us who we are, unintelligent, vulnerable, aimless sheep, but it also tells us the nature of Jesus' co- compassion for us, his care for us. 
Mark chapter 6, verse 34 says, When Jesus saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. He was moved with compassion by the thought that we needed somebody to care for us. We needed somebody to lead us. Jesus said, I will be that good shepherd. He said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus, as the good shepherd, experienced this death for us on the cross in our place as a sacrifice for our sin. That's what makes him the good shepherd. We needed somebody to care for us. We need somebody to save us. We need somebody to make us their own. And Jesus said, I will do that. I will be the good shepherd and lay down my life to care for them. But he's not just the good shepherd because the adjective changes. When we come to Hebrews, we find out that he's also the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. That lays his down, down his life for the sheep. But he's also the great shepherd. And his greatness, his greatness is on account of the fact that not only did he die, but he rose again. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, not only died for the sheep, but he lives to give life to the sheep. That's what Jesus has done for you. It's what he's done for me. He died for us. To save us. He rose again to give us life. To breathe new life into us. To give us hope, peace, joy, and purpose. All on the account of his resurrection. Now the question is, how did the resurrection happen? Well, look, look again at the benediction. Again, this is, a, this is a resurrection benediction. It is filled with gospel truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 20. Here's how the resurrection happened. It happened through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Amen. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Jesus' death was the perfect blood sacrifice that was needed in order to redeem us from our sins. We were lost in our sins without hope. No one in this room, no one who has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ could do anything about that. We could not save ourselves. But Jesus, who is perfect, God in the flesh, 100% God, while at the same time 100% man, he became the perfect blood sacrifice. This is what we've been studying throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 says, According to the law, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, that's what he's been reminding us of. Without the sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. This is why we have the Old Testament sacrifices being made. Every year, coming back to the tabernacle, offering that lamb up as a sacrifice and, and that shedding of blood, covering their sins for another 365 days. But then they got to do it again, and they got to do it again, and they got to do it again. Never was one sacrifice sufficient for all sin. 
And so these sacrifices over and over again, it was a picture of what Christ would one day come to do as the shepherd becomes the lamb. He becomes one of us, yet perfect, laying down his own life, shedding his blood to forgive us of our sins, to reconcile us to God, to give us eternal life, because that's the only way that it could ever happen. But God makes a new covenant through the means of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their heart, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. For where there is remission of these, there is no longer the need for an offering for sin. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new and eternal blood covenant. He was the perfect sacrifice, for there was no sin in him at all. The everlasting covenant is complete in the finished work of Christ. And no longer is there any more need for another sin offering. Jesus and his sacrifice was the once and for all sin offering needed to cover our sins for eternal life. This is the everlasting blood covenant. So when Jesus died on the cross on that Good Friday and shed his blood, as they took his lifeless body down off the cross and placed it in that borrowed tomb, it was then that Jesus began to make atonement for sin. By his blood in heaven, he satisfied the wrath of God. He stood before God the Father and said, Father, on account of my blood, I am here on behalf of my sheep. And he made atonement for sin. He made the payment, the transaction through the cross. Think about this. The atonement for sin was made in heaven by the blood of Jesus. It was done for you. It was done for me. Yeah, I know some of you are sitting here this morning. You think, Pastor, but you have no idea. You don't know where I've been. You don't even know my name. You know very little about me. You don't know about my life. There is no way that one man's sacrifice could all of a sudden make me right with God and forgive every wrong I've ever done or ever will do. No, no, no. That's exactly what I'm telling you. I don't have to know who you are. I don't have to know what you've done. All I know is this, that Jesus Christ made an atonement for your sin. He made a payment for your sin. A transaction took place on Good Friday when he was hanging on the cross, when he stood before God the Father on your behalf and said, here is Joe's payment. Well, how do you know? That atonement was made for my sins. You weren't there in heaven. How do you know that that transaction processed? You know, I go to the store. I slide the card in. I get a receipt. It tells me complete or incomplete. I don't know how many ways you can stick a stinking credit card in a machine and try to get a transaction processed. I swipe. It says don't swipe. It says leave it in. I leave it in. It says that I should have pulled it out quicker than I did. I just want to pay for the stinking gas that's costing me a fortune. 
But finally, whichever way that I get, I'm going to get a receipt that says transaction process. Well, pastor, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. How do you know atonement was made for my sin? How do you know that Jesus made the transaction complete? Well, we know that atonement for our sin was made because God brought Jesus back from the dead. (laughs) That's how we know. He's the receipt, the resurrection. The resurrection three days later is the evidence that atonement for sin was made. Had atonement not been made, resurrection would not have occurred. He would have stayed in the tomb just like every other man on this life, on this earth. But Jesus died. He paid in full the transaction that was necessary. And the receipt is shown on the day that he rose back from the dead. It is evidence that forgiveness is ours through Christ. John Owen, one of the greatest theologians that you could ever read after, said it like this. The death of Christ, if he had not risen, would not have completed our redemption. We should have been still in our sins. For evidence would have been given that atonement was not made. But the bringing again of Christ from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant is that which gives assurance of the complete redemption and salvation of the church. You see, the God who wants you to open your life to him is the God who gives peace. And he is the God who brought back Jesus from the dead. Thirdly, he is the God who equips his people to please him. Let's look at this quickly. He is the God who equips his people to please him. We we now enter into verse 21 of the benediction. It's really one long-running sentence. It it begins at the outset in verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, and he's continuing to list all these things. And here's the third thing that he lists in verse 22. Now, may the God of peace make you complete. Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So, follow me. He's the God who gives peace. He's the God who brought back Jesus from the dead. And he is the God who equips his people to please him. Now, this is so encouraging because it underscores for us what the totality of God's salvation does in a believer's life. He not only forgives our sins and gives us eternal life, but he is constantly working in our lives today, making us men and women who please him. Him. Think about it like this. What sin has broken, God is putting back together through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what that little phrase, make you complete, means. In the original Greek, it means he is is repairing you. He's, let me say it in a good Cabarrus County way, he's fixing you. He's fixing you. What, what sin broke in you and what sin broke in me, God, through his resurrection, is repairing. He's, he's putting it back together. He's making you complete. He's repairing what is broken. And he's doing this, look at it in verse 21, so that we can do his will. All right? God saved you so that you could stand forgiven in his grace. God saved you so that you could resurrect from this life in the same way that he did. Eternity, heaven, life forever. And he saved you to do his will. To do his will. And that's why God is always working on us. He's always working on us by working in us. 
Always fixing something. Always fixing something. Now, there are two types of men in this room. Husbands. There are those who are always walking around the house fixing something. And then there's guys like me who don't know how to fix anything. My, my, my friend, Al's, is here this morning. He, he, he owns a repair shop, so when the dryer goes down, we call Al's. When the refrigerator goes down, we call Al's. Because uh, Jonathan don't know how to fix nothing. But I'm glad Al's does. <laughs> All right? Here's the Lord. He knows how to fix everything. Everything. And when he purchased you, he did not purchase you to let you continue wallowing in your same brokenness. He, f- he purchased you to fix you, to, to repair you. He's always working on you. And by the way, that work is ongoing until we see him. We will not be perfectly fixed until we see Jesus. John Piper said it like this. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you might be only aware of one or two of them. It's good to think about, isn't it? God is always doing 10,000 different things in my life, but I might only be aware of one or two of them. We, we often see only a tiny fraction of what God is doing. And what we do see may not make any sense to us, but what we can know is that God is always equipping us. He's always working in us to please Him through the grace and strength of Jesus Christ. Some of us think that God has only given us one shot at this thing, and that as soon as we mess up, God is done with us. No. No, that's not true. You can mess up a thousand times and God is still not done with you. He's in the business of repairing what is broken, equipping every part of our lives so that we can do his will. And what is his will? Don't look at me. Look at it there in your Bible, verse 21. His will is to please him. And how is it that we please him? Through Jesus Christ. No one can please God without Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection, we've been given Christ in us. Christ in us, the hope of life and death, the ability to please God. I know, I know you're thinking the pastor says, I can't please God. And you're right, you can't. But in the strength and grace of Jesus, you will. You will. God, the God of heaven, the God of the resurrection, he wants you to open your life to him today because he's the God who gives peace He's the God who brought back Jesus from the dead. He is the God who equips his people to please him. And lastly, he is the God who deserves glory forever and ever. He is the God who deserves glory forever and ever. Look at the conclusion of the benediction in verse 21. It says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This concluding portion of the benediction is a reminder that God deserves all the glory that we can give him now and all the glory that we will give him forever. Simple question, is God receiving glory in your life? That's why he made you. He made you so that your life would give him glory. The first question of the Westminster Shorter catechism is what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. That's our purpose. That's why we're here, to glorify God forever. Are you giving God glory? 
I'm telling you, on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and every day of the year, God deserves all the glory that we can give Him. One of the greatest Christian movements in history is known as the Protestant Reformation. Most of you are familiar with it in the 1500s. It was a time when believers stood in protest against the false doctrine of the dominant Catholic Church. Reformers like Zwingli and Luther and Calvin, they were all monumental in providing a clear distinction between the Bible's teaching on salvation by grace versus what the Catholic message was, which is salvation by works. And that is what resulted in the Protestant Reformation, a return to the Word of God, which clearly states that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. Through the years, five little phrases have been put together to capture the essence of what the Reformation was mainly about. We use them often here in our church. They're called the five solas. Sola is simply Latin for alone. It means these things we find in God's Word stand alone. And they're very helpful for our understanding of biblical salvation. There's, there's five of them. The, the first one is sola gratia, sola gratia, which is grace alone. The second one is sola fide, which is faith alone. The third one is sola Christo, which is Christ alone. And then we have sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. And then the fifth and final one is sola deo gloria, which is the glory of God alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and the glory of God alone. So when you put it together in a sentence, when you're describing what we believe about salvation, here's how we would say it. Biblical salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. And all of them tell us the story of biblical salvation. We are not saved by works. We are not saved by merit. We are not saved by religious aspirations. We are saved by grace alone. That grace is ours through faith alone. Faith in what? Not faith in faith. Not faith in the universe. Not faith in some being. No, faith in Christ alone. Well, how do we know that that's true? Because Scripture and Scripture alone tells us that it is true. And when we come to believe that and receive it for ourselves, how can we not give God but all the glory alone? For I am not saved because of me. I need no glory. I did nothing to contribute to my salvation. God did everything to him be glory alone. Think about that. Sola Dea Gloria. For the glory of God. He created us for his glory. He saved us for his glory. He is sustaining us for his glory. And he is changing us for his glory. What a change it would make in our life if we began every day praying, God, help me to glorify you in all things today. Jesus wants to save you this morning. And you can leave this place on Easter Sunday with the peace of God, with new life in God, with purpose, and with glory to give him. By simply coming to him in faith, believing what he has done and done alone 
for the saving of our sins by dying on the cross, rising again the third day, and recognizing that it is all the work of Christ. Not one ounce of it is the work of me. Now, the final verses, and as we're studying through a particular book of the Bible, I can't leave any verses out. I never do. So I'm going to have to at least close this morning by giving you the final verses, 22 through 25, and I'll just summarize them. They're a subscript to the writer's benediction and conclusion of the letter. Look at verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with the word of exhortation. That's what I try to ask you to do every Sunday morning. Bear with my preaching. That's what he's saying. Bear with my preaching. Just hang in there with me. Notice what he says, for I've written to you in few words. Come on, pastor, it took you two years to go through Hebrews. We could have done this a lot quicker. He did it in few words. You did it in much words. The point of what he's saying here is, pay attention to what I've said to you. Press on. Press on. Don't go back. Don't turn away from him. You keep going. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you live for him until the day he brings you home. Pay attention to what I've said to you. And then look at verse 23. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free with some or with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. And then he says, greet all those who rule over you and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. There's a, it's talk of church life here, right? Church life. So what he's saying is cherish the fellowship that you have in the gospel. Cherish it. Cherish it. Oh, thank God for the church. Christ died and rose again so that we could have this. May we cherish this as we serve him and live for him together. And then finally, verse 24, or verse 25, he says, grace be with you all. Amen. Grace be with you all. Amen. And people have asked me from time to time, how do we know Paul didn't write this letter? Because when Paul ends his letters, he says, you need to kiss everybody. There's no kissing going on at the end of Hebrews. Greet each other with a holy kiss, and then grace be with you. So Paul had nothing to do with this, man. He was a kissing disciple. Just grace, just grace. Simple reminder, live in the grace of Jesus. Hey, you come to Jesus, you're not expected to leave here perfect. Good night. If we were expected to leave here perfect, I'd have felt a long time ago. A long, long time ago. There's not a day that goes by I don't mess up. Not a day. But I don't live in my ruin. I live in the grace of Jesus Christ. That as many times as I mess up, he is there over and over and over again to pick me back up, assure me of his love and forgiveness in my life, and to help me move forward in the work that he is doing in my life. Live in the grace of Jesus. I asked you at the beginning of this message to gaze with me into this resurrection benediction and see the God who wants you to open your life to him. He's the God who gives peace. He's the God who brought back Jesus from the dead. He's the God who equips his people to please him. And he's the God who deserves glory forever and ever. Here's the wonderful truth. He can be your God today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be. Confess with your mouth, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Believe in your heart. Everything it says is true. He died and rose again for my sins. I believe the gospel. And call upon him in faith and trust and you will be saved. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the glorious gift of God. God has invited you to his party today. And yet he's the one giving out the gifts. Will you take it? Will you take it? I pray that you will. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.